wonderful to be able to gather together in the Lord's house and sing praises to our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Thank you for being with us this evening. And for those of you who are watching online, we welcome you as well. And thank you for tuning in. Uh, Good news, the COVID fatality rate is now down to just 1%. I don't know if you're hearing that in the media. What that means is, is that the people who are sick with COVID, those who are actually sick with COVID, testing positive for COVID, 99 out of 100 of them are living. Only 1 out of 100 are dying. And that's very good news. I don't know why this isn't being shouted from the rooftops from all the major medias. There's actually an article in the Los Angeles Times. They must have buried it somewhere in the LA Times because no one seems to really be talking about this. Uh, I spoke with a friend of mine who is the Kern County Supervisor, Zach Scrivener. He said they're seeing the same thing with their county health department in Kern County. It's a 1% fatality rate. That means 99 out of 100 people are recovering just fine from COVID. Only 1% are dying. And so uh, your COVID fatality rate is only 1%, right around the, the, the same as a bad seasonal flu. Uh, and the mortality rate, which is... Uh, your odds of dying just in general from this is about one out of 4,200 in the state of California. As a matter of fact, I did some research. You have more of a likelihood of getting struck by lightning in California than you do of dying of COVID. So it's, it's really just, this is good news. COVID is not as bad as, as the media is making it out to be. Certainly people have died. Certainly people are getting sick. But it's, it's not like the Black Plague or the Bubonic Plague that killed half of Europe. Uh, this is 1% of the people who uh, uh, contract COVID are dying. So that, that's really, actually really good news. And then there's some more good news on the front of churches kind of taking a stand uh, Pastor Bob sent me this article the other day, and uh, this is a district attorney out of San Luis Obispo County declared on Monday, August 10th, that his county is now a sanctuary county for church worship gatherings. And I'll read a little bit of this article. It's from the ChristianPost.com. It says, San Luis Obispo County, located in Central California, has become a sanctuary county for churches struggling to cope with state restrictions on worship gatherings. San Luis Obispo County District Attorney Dan Dow, uh, Dan Dow confirmed late last month he will not prosecute churches for holding worship services or for singing in church which was deemed unlawful by an order from California Governor Gavin Newsom. In many counties, pastors have had to decide between revolting or abiding by the order. Newsom's order to ban or limit church gatherings has led to lawsuits from churches and even a federal court ruling in May where District Judge George A. Mendez ruled that Newsom's order is legal during the COVID-19 crisis. And then the... uh, The DA says this, quote, he says, I declare San Luis Obispo County a sanctuary county for singing and praising in our houses of worship, unquote. Dow said in a video shared via Twitter. He continues, quote, inherent with my responsibility to enforce the law is the discretion I have to pursue only those charges that are warranted and in the interest of justice. And, uh, Let me see. There's one more quote I wanted to include here. He said this now more than ever in 2020. This is what the DA says now more than ever in 2020. We need more people attending their houses of worship and seeking help from the almighty for an answer to the coronavirus. Dow said in that spirit, I'm calling on people of faith in our county and across our state, across our country and across the world to pray for peace and healing. Praise the Lord. This man has the courage to stand up for the churches in San Luis Obispo County. And uh, I'm hopeful that that there will be many churches that will open because if the DA is not going to prosecute the churches, then the churches aren't going to be prosecuted there uh, in Slow County. 
and perhaps even our county might follow their lead. Uh, you might want to reach out to our DA uh, or to our sheriff and uh, encourage them to take a look at what San Luis Obispo County is doing, and perhaps we could become a sanctuary county here as well in Tulare County. So this is all very, very good news. And again, that's why we feel safe meeting here. We don't feel this is unsafe. We don't feel that we are lawbreakers. We're doing anything wrong. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that the DA said he was making this decision is because they're releasing tens of thousands of prisoners from all of our prisons in California uh, so that they won't get COVID. And yet we're going to shut the churches down. And he uh, this, the governor wants to send the, the convicted prisoners, the convicted felons and misdemeanors or felons. They don't put misdemeanors in jail anymore, apparently, uh, put them out on the streets to protect them from COVID. And yet what? They're going to arrest the Christians and the pastors and put them in the jails for meeting to worship God. It's ridiculous. And so uh, thank God for a DA who has the courage uh, and the wherewithal to take a stand. And I, I pray that God blesses uh, him and that other DAs will, will follow his example. Okay, we're in Isaiah chapter 7, if you'd like to open up there. And there is so much here in Isaiah chapter 7. Some of you have already uh, read through this chapter before you came tonight. And I, I had about five different messages that I was thinking of teaching, and, and I'm going to just go through the whole chapter tonight, kind of do an overview of the chapter, and we will definitely spend some time looking at the deity of Christ, looking at the virgin birth on Sunday morning. We'll, go, we'll just drill down uh, in chapter 7 in uh, verse 14 on Sunday morning, looking at Jesus Christ, this wonderful prophecy of the virgin birth and of uh, the one who's going to come, uh, who shall be called uh, Emmanuel, which translated means God is with us. But tonight's going to be more of an overview as we go through this whole chapter, Isaiah chapter 7, and we'll get right into it here. I've entitled the message, The Battle Belongs to the Lord. So let's read the first six verses of Isaiah chapter 7. Verse 1 says this, Now it came about, or it came to pass, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. It was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands. For the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. So tonight we're going to actually look at somewhat of a history lesson here. Um, and, and we'll look at some of the details of the events that are being talked about here in Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, these were taking place during the reign of King Ahaz. Now, King Ahaz was the grandson of Uzziah. You remember Uzziah died in chapter 6, verse 1. We read about that in the year that King Uzziah died. And then Isaiah went on to have that great vision of heaven and so forth. Um, but Uzziah had his son Jotham, who was a co-regent with him, as you may recall. Uzziah uh, went into the place he wasn't allowed to go into. He tried to offer incense in the temple, and God smote him with leprosy because that was not the role of the king to go into the temple. That was the role of the priest only. And so when, um, when Uzziah became a leper, he was put into really isolation 
or seclusion or quarantine because he was sick. And normally you quarantine the sick people. You don't quarantine the well people, as we know. And so they quarantined him because he was sick with leprosy. Uh, And his son, Jotham, who was a good king, Uzziah was a good king also, Jotham ruled as a co-regent until the time of his father's death. And then Jotham became the king over Judah when Uzziah the king died. Jotham, also a good man, a good king. Now, Ahaz has come on the scene, and Ahaz is Jotham's son. Ahaz is the grandson of Uzziah. And Ahaz, as we're going to see tonight, is a very wicked king. He was one of the wicked kings in Judah. And so uh, no doubt Ahaz had good reason uh, to be scared because he was a wicked king. And the enemies were coming on his doorstep and wanted to replace him with their own, uh, their own puppet king, as it were, uh, the son of Tabal, as we read in verse 6. So, Here, what's happening behind the scenes is that the ten northern tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel, has formed an alliance with Syria, otherwise called uh, Aram, Aram, A-R-A-M, Aram, the Aramians, or also the Syrians. And they had forged this alliance, Israel and Syria, uh, and they were going to come and they were going to take out Judah. Uh, they wanted Judah to align themselves with them to oppose the king of Assyria, who was a dominating kingdom that was coming. And, uh, and Judah would not align themselves with Israel and Syria. And so they were just going to come and they were going to depose the king. They were going to take the king off the throne uh, and they were going to put their own man on the throne in Judah. And so uh, Ahaz, a wicked king, he was scared, rightfully so. Uh, He really uh, didn't have on his own, he didn't have the strength to fight against Israel and Syria who were combining forces to come against him. So let's turn back to 2 Kings chapter 15 where we get uh, the the historical record of this event. 2 Kings chapter 16 One, actually, let's go back and read 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 37 and 38, and then we'll jump to chapter 16, verse 1. So 2 Kings chapter 15, and 2 Kings is located in your Bible right after the book of 1 Kings, if you're looking for it there. That's a joke, by the way. It's like 2 Chronicles comes after 1 Chronicles. Uh, So we have... 2 Kings 15, verse 37. In those days, the Lord began to send Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, against Judah. Verse 38. So Jotham rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. Then Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. Remember, Jotham was the son of Uzziah. Jotham was a good king. Jotham dies. Now his son Ahaz takes over the reign over Judah. And so we read in chapter 16, verse 1, in the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and he burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. So he was a wicked king. He was a young king, probably very arrogant. I mean, he started his reign at 20. He was finished by 36. He only reigned 16 years. Uh, And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God. But it says he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Think of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel when you think about the kings of Israel. Wicked kings. 
uh, the kings of Israel, the ten northern tribes. They went right into idolatry after the nation of Israel split when Solomon died. David's son Solomon died. His son Rehoboam took over. And then the nation of Israel divided into two kingdoms. The ten northern tribes became the nation of Israel. Very powerful, very wealthy. Uh, King Ahab was very powerful. He was very wealthy, but he was uh, a total idolater. Uh, and his wife Jezebel was a wicked, wicked woman. Uh, and then you have, um, you have the two southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah, who were primarily good kings. This is the line of Judah. This is the line of the tribe of Judah. The line, the line of David is going to come through. The Messiah is going to come through Judah. They controlled Jerusalem and southern Israel, and they managed the temple and the priesthood and so forth. But this king was a wicked king. Not only did he walk in the ways of the kings of Israel, indicating that he was worshiping other gods, but he also offered his own children in the fire. It says he made his son pass through the fire. Now, they used to, uh, there were so many wicked things that, that, that the nations did in ancient times that we just can't wrap our minds around today. Uh, but the heart of man is so wicked when man is separated from God. And they used to offer their children as human sacrifices to their gods in order that they might have prosperity, in order that they might have more productive farmland, or in order that they may win in battle against their enemies. And so when they say that they would cause their children to pass through the fire, they used to have a statue, historians uh, tell us, archaeologists and so forth, they found these statues of Molech, which is one of the gods that were worshipped in this area. And they would actually have uh, like a bronze statue with the arms outstretched. They would also have a the goddess Ashtoreth, which was the goddess of fertility with a whole temple prostitute system where men would go. They'd pay to have sex with temple prostitutes. This was all part of the worship of the goddess of fertility. Ashtoreth, they'd have all these unwanted babies as a result of their fornication with the temple prostitutes. Uh, and then they would offer the babies as human sacrifices to the god Molech, the god of pleasure. So Ashtoreth was the goddess of fertility. Uh, Molech was the god of pleasure. And what they would do, historians tell us, is they would take this statue, they would heat it up to where it was burning, glowing, red with fire. The, the, it would be bronze. It would have its arms outstretched. They would fill it with coals and with fire in the back. The whole thing would heat up to where it was just glowing and they would be worshiping this idol and dancing around it and worshiping this idol as it would glow in the nighttime. Then they would begin to offer their children as human sacrifices to this God. They would lay the babies on the arms of Molech and the babies would be burned alive. And they would just, they would just squeal and they would scream with pleasure as the baby would die. Uh, and, and this is what the secular historians tell us happened in this part of the world. Horrible, terrible, wicked human sacrifice. Uh, taking the innocent babies and offering them as a sacrifice to their gods for pleasure, for, for power, uh, and for, uh, money. And so this is what this king did. He had a right to be scared because he was a wicked king. Anybody that would offer uh, his own son, who theoretically would have been one of the heirs to the throne of Judah, to offer his own son, pass his son through the fire uh, to these false gods, was a very wicked individual. Now he continues in verse 6. It says, At that time, Rezin, king of Syria, captured Elath for Syria, and drove the men of Judah from Elath. Then the Edomites went to Elath and dwell there to this day. Verse 7, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pilazar, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. And so Ahaz was looking to forge an alliance with the king of Assyria, who was the enemy of God's people too. So he went to one of God's enemies, the king of Assyria, uh, Tiglath-Pileazar, uh, to try and get them to form an alliance so that they would come and protect them or fight for them, the Assyrians, against the Israelites and the Syrians who had besieged Jerusalem. He ought not to have forged this alliance with 
God's enemies. But this shows that he was a man who was lacking in faith. It shows that he was a man who did not trust the Lord. And it showed that he was a man who was controlled and ruled by fear rather than faith in the God of Israel. But again, he was a wicked king, so he had good reason uh, to be afraid. Now, we know that David, who was a righteous man and a righteous king, he showed us uh, what it looked like, and he showed all of Israel what it looked like to actually let the Lord fight your battle for you and to take a stand against your enemies and the Lord to go to battle for you. In 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 42, I'm going to read this to you. Uh, when the Philistines looked about and they saw David, uh, or the Philistine rather, speaking of Goliath, looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was only a youth, a ruddy and good-looking youth. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistines, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Verse 48. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, and he slung it, and he struck the Philistine in his forehead, so that the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Verse 52, now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron and the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Shariam, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Verse 47 is the key here where David says, the Lord does not save by sword or spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. David could say that because David had great faith. David was a righteous man. He would go on to become a righteous king. He, he was someone who loved the Lord. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel who went on to become their greatest general and then their greatest king uh, in all of Israel's history. And there's a principle here that he realized, I can't go and kill this giant but God is not going to let this guy stand because of what he's saying uh, about the people of Israel and what he's saying about the God of Israel. And indeed, David had the courage knowing that God was going to fight for him against God's enemies because the battle is not ours. He says the battle belongs to the Lord. So Ahaz would have known this story. This was part of their own history. Now, we also read in 2 Chronicles in chapter 14, a similar situation with King Asa, another king of Judah later. 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 8 says this. And Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah who carried shields and spears and from Benjamin, 280,000 men who carried shields and drew bows all these were mighty men of valor. Then Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Mereshah. So Asa went out against him, and they set the troops in battle array in the valley of Zephanatha at Mereshah, 
And Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you, and in your name we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. So the Lord struck the Ethiopians before Asa in Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And Asa and the people who were with him pursued them to Gerar. So the Ethiopians were overthrown, and they could not recover, for they were broken before the Lord and his army. And they carried away very much spoil. Then they defeated all the cities around Gerar, for the fear of the Lord came upon them. And they plundered all the cities, for there was exceedingly much spoil in them. Again, this is a king of Judah uh, who... um, Turn to the Lord. He realized there's no way. We don't have enough soldiers to go, go against a million-man army that's invading us from Ethiopia. Uh, there, was, there was no help for them. Their only hope was that the Lord would fight their battles for them. And so he cried out to God as the king. He humbled himself as the king of Judah to cry out to the Lord for help. And the Lord fought for them. It says the Lord struck the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah and the Ethiopians fled. That's how Ahaz should have handled the situation that he was facing. One more example in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and this is a very uh, well-known example of God fighting for his people with another king of Judah, a good king, King Jehoshaphat. And we read this in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 1. It happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Amnon And others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria. And they are in Hazazon Tamar, which is in Engedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your right hand, is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Verse 7, are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? And so he's crying out to God, the king. He's crying out to God. He takes the whole nation and he gathers them together before the Lord. He humbles himself. He's fasting as the leader of the nation of Judah. He's fasting and praying and he's fearing and he's seeking the Lord. And he proclaimed a whole fast throughout the whole nation of Judah to to humble himself before God and to implore the Lord to help him. He's he's saying, Lord, we can't fight these armies that are coming against us. They're too mighty for us. They're too powerful for us. They they are too uh, violent and and strong. We cannot uh, defeat them. So he's just falling upon the mercy of God and crying out to God, imploring the Lord for mercy uh, to to come and to save them. Verse 9 continues. He says, if disaster comes upon us or sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence for your name is in this temple and cry out to you in our affliction and you will hear and you will save. And now here are the people of Ammon, Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. But they turned from them and they did not destroy them. Here they are rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, verse 12, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you and you you have this precious scene in verse 13 it says now all of judah 
with their little ones, all their children, their wives, their children, their babies. They stood there before the Lord. The whole nation came before God and just humbled themselves before the Lord. The king humbling himself, fasting and, and, and imploring the Lord for mercy. The whole nation, all the women and children, everybody there just, just crying out to God to help them, to save them. And of course, we know that the Lord showed up in a big way and turned the enemies against themselves and they ended up destroying each other. We skip to verse 17. The Lord speaks to the prophet, uh, to the king. He says, you will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Imagine the king of the nation on his face before the Lord in the temple. And the whole nation sees the king bowing before the Lord, his face down on the ground. And the whole nation falls down on their face before the Lord and worshiping the Lord because the Lord is speaking to them through the prophet that they're not going to have to fight. They don't need to fear. God is with you and God is going to fight your battles for you. And so we read in verse 19, Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. So they rose early in the morning, went out into the wilderness of Tekoa, and as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. In other words, don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your sword. Trust in God. Believe the Lord and the word of the Lord, and you're going to prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, verse 21, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness. As they went out before the army and they were saying, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. So when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and there were their dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry, which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. And they were three days gathering the spoil because there was so much. See, these are the examples in the scriptures that the kings of Judah should have looked to when the enemies of God came to uh, attack God's people. But again, because Ahaz, Ahaz was a wicked king and he was uh, offering his own sons uh, to the false uh, gods and worshiping the false gods of the land there in uh, Judah, he didn't have the confidence. But God was going to save Ahaz anyways, in spite of himself, not for his sake, but for the sake of the nation and for the sake of the promises that he had made to uh, their father, King David. Now, we, in the New Testament, we understand that we are not fighting against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against enemies that are, are, are flesh and blood enemies. We're fighting against powers and principalities, spiritual forces in high places. And we don't have uh, uh, physical weapons to fight a spiritual battle. We have spiritual weapons to fight against spiritual enemies. We read in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand therefore. And then he goes into all of the different armaments, uh, the um, 
uh, armor of God that, that, that we are to put on. So it's, it's, it's interesting that the Lord wants to be the one to fight our battles. If you want to fight your own battles, he'll let you. God will let you, but you're not going to do very well. It's better to let the Lord fight your battles for you. God does a great job. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't go, you know, too hard on someone or take it too easy on someone because God knows everything. He knows the mind. He knows the heart. He knows the will. He knows the secrets of the heart. He knows the conspiracies of man. All the stuff we don't know, God knows. So uh, Pastor Chuck used to say, you know, if you want to defend yourself, go right ahead and you're, you're probably going to be sorry with the result. Or you could just let the Lord defend you and you will never be disappointed because the Lord will fight your battles for you if you allow him to fight your battles for you. Now, back in Isaiah chapter 7, as the story continues to unfold here, Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to be back in 2 Kings 16 in just a minute. Isaiah 7, verse 5, continuing where we started, we read this. Because Syria, Ephraim, Ephraim would have been uh, Israel, the ten northern tribes of Israel, another name for Israel. Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia have plotted evil against you, saying... Let us go up against Judah and trouble it and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and let us set a king over them. The son of Tabal, verse seven, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand nor shall it come to pass. And so the uh, uh, prophet is now declaring that the Lord is going to defend Judah and Jerusalem in spite of the wicked king, faithless king Ahaz. Thus says the Lord, it shall not stand. Their schemes, their plans are not going to stand. They are not going to come to pass. Verse 8, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. And if you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. And so not only was Ephraim or Israel not going to be successful in taking down Jerusalem and taking down the nation of Judah, but the prophet Isaiah is predicting and prophesying that 65 years from this point, Israel is going to be broken and they're not even going to be a people. So what he was predicting and prophesying was that Assyria would later come down after this, long after this. Remember, Judah's trying to make an alliance with Assyria. They're trying to uh, actually buy some, 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 some uh, mercenaries and some armies to come and help them, as we're going to see here in just a minute, from Assyria. Well, Assyria is later going to come and knock on their door when Hezekiah is the king and try to take down Judah themselves. Assyria was wanting to wipe out everybody. They were the ancient power at this time, the Assyrian Empire. And so they were trying to hire Assyria to help them. Assyria later was going to completely wipe out the nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes called Ephraim here. Uh, and what the Assyrians would do is they would capture the people, they would come in, they were just so powerful. The Assyrians were so powerful and they were just so uh, intense. Nobody could really stand against the Assyrians at this time. You're talking maybe 750 uh, and, and, and AD, something like that, or BC rather, 750, 760 BC around this time, maybe 740. Uh, in 722, the Assyrians came down and they just annihilated the 10 northern tribes of Israel. Remember, uh, Israel was a wicked nation. They were, uh, they were King Ahab, Jezebel. They were offering their children as human sacrifices. All the kings were offering their children as human sacrifices to Molech and to the false gods. And God finally brought judgment against them through the Assyrians. And what the Assyrians would do is they would just intimidate the nation. They would come in, and if you did not surrender to them, they would kill everyone. They'd kill man, woman, and child. And they basically, Assyrian would say, we could do this the easy way or we could do this the hard way. You're going to lose. You're going to go down. And if you will just uh, surrender to us, we'll let you live. But if you surrender to us, we're going to take your land and we're going to uh, move you to another land. And that's what they would do. They would move conquered peoples all around their empire uh, because once you remove someone from their homeland, they lose their language, they lose their culture, they lose their, their history. And so you can basically erase their past and you could make them into what you want to make them into. 
And so the ten northern tribes eventually capitulated to the kings of Assyria. And the kings of Assyria took them in captivity all the way across their empire, way out to Nineveh, way out to ancient Babylon. And, uh, and the ten northern tribes of Israel really were not ever reunited again after the Assyrians came uh, and took them into captivity. But then what they would also do is they would take people from the opposite end of their empire and they would move them into Israel, specifically into Samaria. And so you had all of these pagans, all of these nations of the Assyrians in Babylon that had been conquered. The Jews or the Israelis or the Israelites were taken over into Babylon to be assimilated into the Assyrian culture, lose their identity, lose their history, lose their language, lose their land, etc. And they would bring in uh, uh, pagans into the other place. And so uh, what you ended up with in Samaria was a bunch of Babylonians and Assyrians that had lost to the Assyrians, and they were moved into the land of Israel, specifically into the land of Samaria, which is why the Jews hated the Samaritans at the time of Christ. You may remember they'd said, we don't have anything to do with the Samaritans because they're not worshiping our God. And to some degree, the Samaritans, uh, they had enough uh, of the history of Israel that they knew about the God of Israel, but the Samaritans also worshiped the gods of the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And so uh, this is what they were trying to do. They were trying to hire the Assyrians to come and to fight for them. And Isaiah the prophet is saying, not only is this attack not going to stand, he says in 65 years, Israel's going to be broken. They won't even be a people uh, anymore. Now we read back in uh, 2 Kings 16, where we were just a few minutes ago. Second uh, Kings 16, continuing the record here of this event in verse 8. Second Kings 16 and verse 8. And Ahaz took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria heeded him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus, that would have been Syria, and took it and carried its people captive to Ker and killed Rezin. Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet with Tiglath-Pilizar, king of Assyria, and he saw an altar that was at Damascus, and King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest, the design of the altar and its pattern according to its works workmanship. Then Urijah, the priest, built an altar according to all that the king Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Urijah, the priest, made it before King Ahaz had come back from Damascus. Verse 12. And when the king came back from Damascus, the king saw the altar and the king approached the altar and made offerings on it. So he burnt his burnt offering and his grain offering and he poured his drink offering and he sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. He also brought the bronze altar, which was before the Lord, from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the house of the Lord and put it on the north side of the new altar. Then King Ahaz commanded Urijah the priest saying, on the great new altar, burn the morning burnt offering, the evening grain offering, the king's burnt sacrifice and his grain offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land with their grain offering and their drink offerings and sprinkle on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice and the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Thus did Urijah the priest according to all that King Ahaz commanded. And King Ahaz cut off the panels of the carts and removed the lavers from them. And he took down the sea from the bronze oxen, like a bath, a sea from the bronze oxen that were under it. And he put it on a pavement of stones. And he also removed the Sabbath pavilion, which they had built in the temple. And he removed the king's outer entrance from the house of the Lord on account of the king of Assyria. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Ahaz rested with his fathers 
and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. And so uh, this king, he was a wicked king. He didn't listen to the prophet Isaiah. He didn't trust in the Lord. He took the money from the temple, God's money from God's temple to go and to make a deal with this pagan king of Assyria who later would come and uh, destroy Israel and then come and besiege uh, uh, Judah and Jerusalem later. Uh, And God would defend Judah and Jerusalem when King Hezekiah was the king there, as we'll see later uh, on in the book of Isaiah, around Isaiah chapter 36 and 37, detail that siege of the Assyrians against Jerusalem. But he made this deal with the devil, as it were. He took the silver and gold that was in the house of the Lord. He took the treasuries from God's house. He sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. Then the king of Assyria went to do his bidding. Uh, He went and attacked Damascus, conquered Syria, killed the king. He took the, the people captive and he moved them to another land. As I was telling you earlier, he moved the people of Syria into a place called Ker. And, uh, and then Ahaz, when he formed this uh, alliance with Telglath-Pelezar, king of Assyria, uh, he saw that there was an altar, a, a, a pagan altar in Damascus that he liked. And so he had the plans drawn up. He sent it back to Jerusalem to the priest. He said, make me an altar like the one that they had in Damascus. It was really cool. I like that altar in Damascus. Now, this is a pagan altar. This is a pagan temple to pagan gods. And he actually began to disassemble all of the implementations that God had put in place and prescribed for the children of Israel to actually worship the Lord. He began to take everything apart, rearrange the furniture, put in this pagan altar uh, and and move God's altar back and, and so forth. And so he was a very wicked king. And in the end, he didn't live very long. He only lived to be 36 years old. And then his son, Hezekiah, who was a good king, a righteous man. Most of the kings of Judah were good kings. Most of the kings of Israel were wicked kings, if you study the history. A little bit of a history lesson tonight for you. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 10 continues the prophecy. We read this in verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz saying, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now, the Lord was telling the king to test him. The Lord was asking the king, you know, uh, ask me what sign you want from me. This king was faithless. In the end, he ended up selling out his people anyways to the Assyrians. Uh, And so the prophet, speaking on behalf of the Lord, is trying to reason with the king, Ahaz, and saying, ask for yourself a sign of the Lord. Ask anything you want, and God will show you he's going to defend you. He's going to defend his house, uh, the temple in Jerusalem. He's going to fight for you. Ask anything. Ask either above, uh, uh, in height above, or, or, or below in the depth. And Ahaz says, oh, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. It's a false pretentious humility that wasn't really sincere. Uh, He had no faith. He was a faithless individual. And even when God said, ask a sign for me, he wouldn't even ask a sign because he was rebellious. He was a rebellious king. He he didn't really care about the things of God. So God was going to give him a sign anyways. We read in verse 13. Then he said, hear now, O house of David, Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? This is Isaiah the prophet speaking. He says, hear now a house of David, not just to the king Ahaz, but to the whole house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And this is the prophecy that Matthew records for us in Matthew's gospel that when the Virgin Mary conceived and brought forth her firstborn son, that this was in fulfillment of this prophecy. A virgin would conceive. This is going to be a major sign. And you see that this wasn't uh, pertaining to the time there. This was pertaining to the future. 
and for the future house of Israel. That's why he said, O house of David. He's speaking to the whole house of David here, not to King Ahaz. He's looking way forward in the future, and he's saying, I'm going to give you a sign, O house of David. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. So we know, uh, and we're going to get into a lot more detail in this on Sunday morning, about the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, uh, uh, Emmanuel, God is with us, Jesus is God, and so forth uh, on Sunday morning. But he tells us three things about the Messiah who is to come. He's going to, number one, be born of a virgin. Of course, we know that he's going to be of the house of David, of the, of the tribe of Judah. He's going to be born of a virgin. That would be a major sign. Uh, he's going to be a son, so he's going to be a male child. Obviously, it's, it's going to be a son who's going to be a king. And his name or his title will be called Emmanuel, which translated means God is with us. He's going to be God in the flesh with us somehow. He's going to be a son of a virgin, a man, and yet he's going to be God in our midst. And of course, Isaiah chapter 9 uh, also talks about, about th this Messiah who is to come, and we'll look at that more on Sunday morning. So he talks about the virgin birth. This is the sign. Uh, and then he continues here in verse 15. He says, Curds and honey shall he eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Curds and honey would be a normal meal for a normal uh, uh, child of Judah at this time. He's going to be human. He's going to eat human food, even though he's going to be God with us, born of a virgin, male child of the tribe of Judah, of the family of King David. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. And so this prophecy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah who was to come, uh, he's, he's saying that before that child's even able to understand evil or good, the land that you dread, which would have been the land of Israel, and the land of Syria, the land that you dread, both are kings, are going to be forsaken. And indeed, long before Jesus Christ was born to the Virgin Mary, uh, this prophecy was fulfilled. Israel was no longer a nation carried away captive by the Assyrians in 720, uh, 722, 721 B.C. Uh, and the Syrians were also uh, destroyed by the Assyrians. Both kings were, were taken down, the kings that he was afraid of. And it is interesting to me that he says before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good. I think there's a little hint here that children who do not have knowledge of sin or knowledge of evil are not going to be held accountable before God uh, for their sin. In other words, man is all we're all sinners were born uh, in sin. My mother conceived me, David said in Psalm 51. We're all born with original sin. And yet I do not believe that babies need to be baptized in order to go to heaven. I don't think God is going to send a baby to hell who doesn't know right from wrong, who doesn't even know their left hand from their right hand until they're four or five years old, who doesn't really understand uh, that they're sinning against God, against the law of God. So there is an age of accountability that I believe. I don't know what the age is. It could be eight. It could be 10. It could be 13. I don't think it's as old as 18. Uh, I think it's somewhere between eight and 13 years old where a child really comes into a knowledge and an understanding of right and wrong. And then when they choose to do evil, they choose to do wrong with full knowledge that they're disobeying, uh, then, then that is when they are now accountable and they must be born again in order to be saved. There's many churches that teach that if you do not baptize babies, they're going to go to hell. I was raised Catholic, and that's what we were taught. That's why the Catholics baptized their babies. I remember my grandfather, um, they lost a child, and my grandfather would always tell the story about uh, my uh, uncle Gregory was his name, who died just several hours after his birth. And my grandpa would tell everyone the story that he got the priest in there into the hospital and had the priest sprinkle the baby with water before the baby took his last breath. And that's why my grandpa was convinced that Gregory uh, was not going to go to hell, even though he was just a baby and he was only a few hours old because they were taught and they are taught that children must be baptized. Otherwise, they have original sin. And because of original sin, uh, they will not go to heaven when they die. I don't believe that that's the heart of God. I don't believe that's biblical. I don't think it's theologically correct. Uh, and I think that uh, 
God is going to cover the children uh, with the blood of Christ who have not really come to their own to understand right uh, and wrong, to be able to choose uh, right and wrong. So again, before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, verse 16, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings, which indeed they were. Verse 17, the Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you. So he's giving them all these prophecies. The king is uh, the Lord is going to bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house. Days that have not come since the day that Ephraim or Israel departed from Judah. So remember, the king is making a deal with the devil. He's making a deal with Israel's enemies, the king of Assyria, given all the treasure from the house of the Lord to the king of Assyria in order to form an alliance. And the Lord uh, is telling him, this same king of Assyria is going to come upon you. And again, we're going to read about this later uh, in the book of Isaiah uh, in Isaiah chapter 36, 37, 38. We talk, it talks about when the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, comes down uh, and mocks the, 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 the God of, uh, of Judah. And, uh, and the Lord ends up defending Judah and Hezekiah. Uh, and Isaiah is right there on, uh, on the scene at that time. But God is predicting and prophesying these things that are going to happen. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you, your people, and your father's house. Days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. Verse 18, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will come and all of them will rest in the desolate valleys and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorns and in all the pastures. Apparently, according to the um, Bible scholars, Egypt was known for its flies. I guess Egypt had a big problem with flies. And so it was something where they were saying, you know, just like you have a bunch of flies in Egypt, they're going to come upon you, the Egyptians, like flies uh, and, and, and swarm your land. And Assyria was known for its bees, known for its agriculture and its beekeeping, apparently, in the ancient world. And so he's saying, just like uh, Assyria is known for its bees and for its beekeeping, uh, they're going to come upon you. The Assyrians are going to come upon you uh, like bees and in desolate uh, valleys, in the clefts of the rocks, all the thorns, in all the pastures. He continues in verse 20 with the prophecy. He says, in the same day... The Lord will shave with a hired razor with those from beyond the river. That would be the great river, river the Euphrates. That would, now he's talking about Babylon, who's actually going to come in 586 B.C. and destroy the Jews and carry them away captive to Babylon. So these are all prophecies that hadn't happened yet, but God is telling them the future. With those from beyond the river, the Euphrates River, Babylon, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and will also remove the beard. It shall be in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. So it shall be from the abundance of the milk they give that he will eat curds for curds and honey. Everyone will eat who is left in the land. It shall happen in that day that wherever there could be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver, it will be for briars and for thorns with arrows and bows men will come there because all the land will become briars and thorns. I guess that's an example in the scriptures that you're allowed to hunt uh, as a Christian. I really never saw that before. But for those of you who are hunters out here, God says it's okay. You go out with your arrows and your bows into the land filled with briars and thorns to go hunting. And, and the reason he's saying this is because Judah would have been a very beautiful uh, agrarian society with a lot of agriculture, vineyards and, and, and crops and fields and so forth. And he's saying, but in this day, you know, they're, they're not going to have the, uh, all of the uh, agriculture that they once had. It's going to be all overgrown with, with briars and thorns. And you may have one cow and a couple of sheep, and that's about it at this time uh, when the judgment of God would later come upon Judah. Verse 25, and to any hill which could be dug with a hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but it will become a range for oxen and a place for sheep to roam. They won't be able to maintain it 
for agricultural purposes anymore. You, you may have a few heads of livestock out there. You may be able to go out there and go hunting with your bow and your arrow. Uh, and this, of course, all literally happened. These prophecies all came true. So there's your lecture for your um, college course on the history of Israel and Judah here tonight. And uh, thank you for uh, staying uh, awake and, and aware. And, um, and then Sunday, we're going to really get into some interesting teachings about Jesus Christ being born of a virgin and his deity and so forth. You won't want to miss it. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, Email us at C-O-A-H podcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church, Tehachapi, California.